This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Random Tables. The Roots of Dr. Faustus. Cities and Crime. And the Source Family. Our next sponsor this week is Atlas Games and their beloved time-honored storytelling card game, Once Upon a Time. As you might have been able to guess from that pressy, in Once Upon a Time, players tell a story together using cards. Each player has a number of cards with fairy tale elements on them. Like a dragon, a stepmother, a journey, a palace. Each player also has one ending card. Like, and so his wound was healed, but his heart remained forever broken. To play Once Upon a Time, one player starts telling a story and laying down their element cards. For example, once upon a time, a brave knight set out on a grand adventure. And then you play your knight card. But other players can get control of the story. When a new player takes over, they continue where the last player left off. Weaving in their own element cards. The goal is to play all your elements and then play your ending card so the story makes sense. Great for role players. Great for kids who are usually better at it than adults. Great for fiction writers to sharpen storytelling, if not editing, skills. Pyramid Magazine called it one of the best games of the millennium. Games Magazine called it the best family card game of the year. Designed by, among others, James Wallace of Baron Munchausen and Nobilis fame. The third edition of Once Upon a Time is out now, with a bunch of expansions and more on the way. But Atlas Games has a problem. They still have copies of the second edition left. For a limited time, Atlas is blowing out the still great second edition at a liquidation rate that includes shipping and handling? Check it out on the web at atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin. So, what are the key things to remember? Once Upon a Time is a card game that's great for role-playing and storytellers. Check. It's an award-winning game created by a towering genius of gaming. Check. This is a limited time chance to check it out at a liquidation pricing. Check. And all the details are at atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin. Indeed they are at atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin. The clatter of dice, the rolling of pencils, the thump of miniatures across the battle mat tell us we have once more entered the friendly, tautly contested confines of the gaming hut. And here in the gaming hut, we are examining the wonderful world of random tables, and not the random table on which you are playing the game, but the random tables you consult to stock the game. Robin, this is practically a thing I always say, but before I say the thing I always say, is there something you have to say to us about random tables? Uh, yeah, let me just uh, check here, Ken. Okay. Okay, yeah, you're being, uh, you're headed down the road and you see two Rakshasras, and they are armed with laser crossbows. Their hats are red, and... Oh, they're communists. <laughs> well, as if they weren't going to be vulnerable to blessed arrows before, they certainly are now. <laughs> um, so I, I thought we would, uh, yeah, look at the whole question of random tables and uh, the different uses to which they can be put. And uh, I guess, obviously, the, the classic one is we were talking about modeling in a previous episode. And I think the idea of rolling on random tables to find out what is in your world is not uh, a tool that is exclusively useful in modeling, but it's a big part of the fun of modeling a setting. So the classic example would be the 
uh, sort of traveler rolling to find out what your uh, star system is and what its ecology are and sort of uh, creating uh, a world uh, not through the conscious decisions of, oh, I need a um, man-based habitable planet here with a, a corn belt on it, but rather, okay, let me figure out what the world is and then create a story to fit around that or to just have it be there and not be interesting or important because the random tables have modeled that that's uh, what it is. So uh, depending on the game system, you can go to uh, a huge degree as a GM, as a world builder, uh, having sort of a a solitaire fun experience working out ahead of time uh, what is in your world through the use of random tables. And also when you are playing, it can be a great source of inspiration whether you're running a modeled world or not if you uh, find yourself needing a choice and just don't have immediately to hand an idea of what the appropriate thing would be uh, dramatically or or story-wise or what the logic of the world would dictate. Or you can just, you know, call on the logic of the world to say, well, uh, are there rakshasas coming down the street? And if so, what color are their hats and are they communists? So um, I think there's something that's a, a lot of uh, fun about random tables for the game master. And one of the tricks, I think, is to find a way to make that fun forward facing so that the players are aware of that. So it doesn't just remain a solitary activity that is uh, a fun part of world building, but somehow the players uh, realize that they're in a world where a certain number of uh, random things happen and how to make those random things seem interesting and fun and not just arbitrary. Yeah. I think that again, if you are, any kind of a, a GM, you're capable of, of taking a, a story event and, and turning it around and making it player-facing and fun, you know, regardless of where it comes from, whether it comes from a random table or whether it comes from Ed Greenwood's um, uh, fertile imagination or whether it comes from your own, um, you know, creative uh, juices. You should be able to take a story element and figure out what's fun about it. You know, what's fun about two rock shots coming down the street? What's fun about their communistic tendencies? What's fun about a planet in which the only human civilization is up on the North Pole and they're mining uh, methane or whatever. The, uh, the creating story there and, and providing an opening to story there is, you know, it, it's, a, it's a fungible skill, I guess, regardless of where the, the methane planet or the Rakshasas came from. Right, and what, what the random table can do in that instance is give you that first idea that you then extrapolate on the way that we were extrapolating on the idea of the dead who sell life in our previous episode. So it gives you that first idea, and then you start to build creative ideas on top of that so that no matter how random it was to begin with, uh, it feels organic by the time that you're uh, done with it. But that's still an element where the randomness is a useful tool for the GM, but does it reach the player interface or does that even matter? I don't don't think it matters. I mean, I think that if you are at a point where the players are rolling randomly to determine what monster is going to attack them or what uh, hat color is coming down the street, that, that may be briefly fun in the sense that it's fun to roll dice and look something up, but it's not, I don't think that it makes the story more or less fun for the players to, be, you know, face first in the randomness of it. I think it makes more, it's more fun if the GM has had the, the lookup moment and then presents it as a story element and the players maybe 
they know because they know from the tempo of it that this is a wandering monster, so it was probably randomly generated. But in a in again, a good GM is gonna be able to tie that randomly generated monster either into the ongoing story as a spur of the main bad guy, or he's gonna be able to give that wandering monster a piece of information or treasure or a clue or something that the players want anyway, or he will at very least be able to have a really good Rakshasa fight while the player characters are like, oh, every minute we spend fighting these communist Rakshasas means that they're able to steal more methane from the planet's core. Damn it! How dare you? And, uh, and add tension to it that way. What I think is the real secret key of random tables is for the setting designer, for the actual game designer like you or me um, who is providing a commercial product for sale because they are such a powerful tool for allowing the GM to co-create your world with you and providing the GM with your guidelines as to the sorts of things that might occur. A random table with, uh, and if you look at uh, Day After Ragnarok, I filled the, the back of that book with random encounters for the Poison Lands because, A, it reinforces the feel of the Poison Lands as a a Conan-esque world where anything can happen, but it also provides boundaries for the GM to look at and say, oh, I see, there could be this kind of a thing, or there could be this kind of a thing, there might be these kinds of monsters, and they understand the components of your world, and then they can just pull things off the random table and never roll a die, or they can roll a die and confidently know that whatever they get is going to slot into the world without being as out of place as Rakshasa's might be on the methane planet. And so you have the random table of the sort that, you know, good old Uncle Gary introduced in the DMG way back in the day being a really powerful tool for setting designers and game designers to provide, you know, information as to what sorts of thing you're going to be running into in this game setting or in this game experience. Right. It's it's not just a mechanism to teach 12-year-old boys uh, 15 different old-timey synonyms for prostitute. No, that I mean, it's among that's among its many skills, but it can also teach boys and girls of all ages how to populate a world with story elements that, in theory, you've thought about before you put them on the random table, and so they don't have to go to the entire world of possible monsters in uh, Savage Worlds or the entire world of possible monsters in D and D. They know that in this particular area in um, uh, Tyrannfell, there are going to be a lot of giants. Uh, some kobolds and possibly vampires, and it's like, okay, I know what kind of what what kind of setting uh, Tyrannfell is, and I can start thinking of stories about giants, kobolds, and vampires. And any story that I come up with that's like that is going to fit into Tyrannfell in a way that a story that was about um, nagas might not. Your mention of wandering monsters is actually an example from the old school tradition that is player facing randomness, mm-hmm. right? Because the calculation in that style of dungeon play is that you are going to stay in the dungeon for a while, uh, which is something that I think newer rule sets uh, kind of uh, set aside, or at least gaming culture is kind of set aside, and that you were measuring the risk of leaving the dungeon, which seemed to be more of a risk then, because I guess other people would come and steal the monster stuff, versus the uh, the risk of running into additional monsters who were crappy monsters in the sense that they didn't have any treasure with them. They're just uh, wandering the halls, because I, I guess you have to have a room in a dungeon in order to have treasure. But they weren't necessarily crappy in terms of they could be actually worse and more frightening than the creatures that were carefully keyed in to begin with. And so you were trying to figure, is it 
safer or less safe to stay in the dungeon and hang around and risk uh, encountering wandering monsters. Or they're also sort of used kind of in a punitive way, which, you know, if you're if you're hanging around, just wasting time... Roll on the wandering monster table. Roll on a wandering monster table, and uh, they will come and get you. So you had to, again, it was a risk-reward thing where you were measuring the risk of hanging around versus the risk of proceeding hastily without executing all of your plans. And so in that case, the, the calculation of not what the monsters were necessarily, but whether the, you were going to have to fight more monsters uh, was definitely part of something that you were uh, aware of. And so when you saw the GM uh, rolling something on the table, that was a, a dramatic moment of, of suspense and not just the role that could be anything, but a role where you knew, oh, okay, are there going to be skeletons or is it going to be something with level drain that we're not equipped to fight? And so that introduced an, an element of uh, decision-making uh, around the idea of randomness. And so that's uh, that's certainly player-facing. Is that something that we can export into other games? Like, for example, an Ashen Stars game, you could know that there are all of these uh, dangerous comets and stellar anomalies, and you didn't know which one of six things your ship might get hit by, and then the uh, there would be some sort of uh, a spend in order to decrease the chance of your being uh, hit by a particular uh, celestial body that you didn't want to be hit by. And that could then, again, enter into the question of, is it safe to hang around here gathering all these additional clues? Can we sustain a hit from an ice comet versus a rock comet? And uh, that could then, you know, re-enter uh, a newer school game uh, with that sort of old school awareness of the danger of a random roll. I think that you can have, uh, I mean, if you're, if, if we start from the thesis that the random monster is meant as a, as a discourager of behaviors that is suboptimal to play, of sitting around and not moving through the dungeon, for example, then we can look and say, what other kinds of behaviors are suboptimal to play in Ashen Stars? And it, maybe it's spending too long around the planet and wasting everyone's valuable time coming up with the perfect uh, scheme or, or, or over-chewing the data. The, the goal is to get them off the ship and down onto the planet and, you know, in, in doing the investigation. And so maybe there is a, a random, um, uh, you know, a random things that go wrong with your ship or there's, you know, random dangers. But the trouble with a random danger to a spaceship is that, you know, one bad roll on that table and that's a TPK. And you don't necessarily get that even with the most uh, brutal of wandering monsters because you can always run away from those. Well, you, you can have, especially in Ashen Stars, you can have danger to a ship that, like, the new component that you've been saving to buy for the last three adventures, you finally install it in the ship and then it gets hit by a chunk of ice comet. Right, so yeah. that there's a price to be paid, and not necessarily even for a suboptimal behavior, but just, you know, you are... Uh, choosing one set of risks over the other, mm -hmm. uh, then, you know, can knock out your new groovy laser cannon. And so that hurts, but it doesn't kill everybody and end the campaign. Yeah. Um, and again, that's not so much, you know, the randomness quotient as, I mean, because that sort of thing, again, you're, you're moving rapidly into the type of area where the GM is going to be doing the targeting on it. They're going to, they roll on the random table. It's like a uh, gamma ray burster. Oh, that would kill everyone. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to roll again. Or now, or forget it. I'm just going to go down the table and pick, oh, Ice Comet, and ah, let's have it hit that laser that they like so much. That'll learn them. And one of the things I think that that does is it 
counters one of the other effects of the random table, which was to insulate the GM from accusations of hosing the players. Because if they see the GM rolling on the table, and he rolls, and he rolls again, you know, it's like, well, all right, we're, we're screwed. We all got level drained, but it wasn't, it wasn't Joe's fault. He didn't do it. It was the table's fault. Oh, who, who wrote that table anyway? Oh, it was Joe. That's yeah, weird. That's odd. Yeah, but, um, uh, but in many cases, it is not Joe who writes the table. It is Gary who writes the table. Yeah. And therefore, it's Gary's fault. But, but the random table acts as an insulator uh, and as a literal sort of a way for the hand of, of the fates to come into the game. So in addition to the sort of um, utility that you're talking about or the ticking clock mechanic that you're talking about, it can also act as a simulator of, or a modeler, uh, using our new terminology, a modeler of random fate, literally, um, that enters the game. Right, and it allows the rules to be adversarial and the GM to still be on your side. Yeah. I think that another thing that you can use in terms of a player-facing moment of randomness is, uh, the, you know, like things like the good old potion mixability table. Remember those where you'd, you'd find two potions and there's a red potion and a blue potion. It's like, um, I don't know. What happens if we mix them? Roll on the potion mixability table. And that one was fun to roll out in the open, right? Where the players could look at it and they'd, uh, and they would roll their, their dice and then they would be complicit in their own destruction by having rolled a 12 or whatever it was. Yes, that's, that's absolutely another great example of uh, player facing randomness. So, uh, and and that's a, a thing where you're sort of um, mucking around in the town afterwards, or you're sort of poking at the edges of this modeled world and seeing how hard it pokes you back. And so you've got the, it's basically the same fun that buying a grab bag at a store is where, you know, it might be, you know, just a couple of plastic cars and some gum, or it might be, you know, a really great Hot Wheels car and uh, and some lawn darts. Well, not lawn darts. <laughs> that would be great. Man, yes. there you go. I, I bought my, my, my grab bag and it's from an, 1980. An insect in Lucite or, or whatever, whatever's in grab bags <laughs> these days. Yeah, I think that you, um, you, the, our, 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 our notion of the random piggly wiggly table, the random treasure table, anytime that you can trust the players or trust the table, maybe not to hose you, is a good time to let the players roll on something like that. On, like you said, where they're poking the universe. So if they've uh, been looting the, uh, the shop at the end of a day after Ragnarok fight, and, you know, maybe they fought a random monster that the GM rolled, but now the GM says, okay, you roll on the random treasure. What's in the, what's in the Piggly Wiggly that you're, that you're looting? And that can provide a, you know, a, a good reward moment, and it combines the reward of it's fun to roll with the, it's clearly not the GM's fault that all there was was, you know, some plastic cars and gum instead of right. water. Right, and, and emotionally water. that gives you a, a punctuated reward mechanism where if occasionally you get a really great, Hall, and then mostly you sort of get average things, and then sometimes you know you're Charlie Brown, and all you get in your Halloween bag is a rock. That that uh, emotional wave of uh, great result, uh, mediocre result, poor result uh, is much more entrancing and engaging than the okay. Well, you need X amount of treasure to go up a level. Uh, and you need 16 encounters, so this, every single encounter has one sixteenth of the n amount of treasure that you need to go up a level. Having that kind of crazy, uh, swingy set of circumstances, even though it sometimes leads to unbalanced results, it's the very thought of the possibility of an unbalanced result that makes it emotionally engaging. Yeah, the, um, another possibility that you can have with, with random stuff 
there's a thing in that used to be great fun in Gamma World, the random mutations that you'd be exposed to the to the radiation or whatever it is, and you'd have to roll a random mutation, and maybe you grew bunny ears, or maybe you got to shoot lasers out of your eyes, or maybe you were, you know, suddenly you lost your, you know, one of your feet or something. And I think it's one of those where the universe can hose you as hard as it rewards you is another good opportunity to let the player do it to themselves uh, in, in terms of the physical mechanism, as opposed to the GM rolling on the table and then looking at you and saying, oh, you lost a foot. That seems more hosey than if the GM rolls on the hidden random monster table and, oh, you're being attacked by uh, wraiths instead of by skeletons, that, that seems less hosey. And so I, I think that the, the, the random mutation or the random danger, if, if there's a, a trap that you know does some amount of damage, maybe letting the players roll their own damage is, is the way to go? I don't know. Right, and in, uh, in RuneQuest, you had uh, uh, chaos creatures were defined by the fact that they had random stuff going on with them. So if you had just your standard level uh, monster, and then it could have X number of chaos features that would be its special attacks. And uh, you could uh, then presumably let the players roll to see what the chaos features were. And that emphasizes, uh, that ties the whole mythology of the setting into the fact that this class of entities is more random than other classes of entities and obviously uh, looks like it. Oh, but wait, um, just a sec here. There's, uh, oh, there's uh, two more Rakshasas, and they're holding up a sign, and it says, move on to the next segment. Mm, well, when Rakshasas say it, you know they mean it. Uh, yeah, because they're communists and they have crossbows. The play of firelight on the petroglyphs tell us that we have entered a particularly ancient and primal chamber, the Mythology Hut. And this week, in response to a request from Genus Unknown, uh, we are going to explore the roots of the Faustus legend. And uh, Ken, maybe uh, the best place to start here is to describe uh, for those who uh, haven't heard of this or have a sort of a fuzzy idea in their head what the main expressions of the Faust legend are in culture as we know it. And then after that, we can go back and find out where they came from. So uh, what is the, the Faustus legend to us today? At, at its base, the Faust legend is about a magician named Faust who makes a deal with a devil or the devil, uh, usually named Mephistopheles, uh, for uh, some consideration, uh, some degree of, of magical or demonic power. And the, it might just be for knowledge, uh, as in the original uh, Faust legend, or it might be for the love of the fair uh, Marguerite, as in Goethe, or it might be for some other consideration to be named later. But at the tail end of, his, uh, of, of the span of the contract, which has an expiration date, um, the devil shows up, or Mephistopheles shows up to take his soul, and either uh, he is dragged off to hell, as befits all bad magicians, or someone uh, suckers the devil out of it, usually by calling on the Virgin or Jesus or the Holy Spirit or something to intercede at the last minute and save Faust from his well-deserved damnation. And those are sort of the two models, but the core element of the story is um, he is a guy who makes a deal with the devil for uh, a period of years. Considerations were provided 
until the contract expires. And that's sort of the, the, the central story of Faust. And what we call the Faustian uh, myth is the, is the, is the, is the legend that you are looking for knowledge above your station. So Frankenstein is a iteration of the Faustian legend, for example. Um, or, um, you can uh, take it down to the human as uh, the romantics did and it becomes uh, the notion that there are some desires on Earth that are so uh, overwhelming that they should outstrip any concern for uh, the heavenly. And that, of course, that is what much of the Romantic period is all about, is that the, 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 the emotion you're feeling right now is the most important thing that could ever, ever happen. Um, I guess Europe was being a teenager during the early, 18th, uh, early 19th century. And certainly the, ideal, uh, the idea of the deal with the devil... Continues to permeate pop culture. I say this as someone whose uh, feng shui characters have mostly just signed a deal with uh, one of the kings of hell, um, and the idea of the the pact that you sign and then later regret, I think, sort of symbolizes the idea of anagnorisis, the realization that you've made after it's too late that you've made a terrible mistake. And of course, here the terrible mistake is signing a deal with the devil. Uh, I would think in most cases, uh, <laughs> I guess nobody in a Faust legend has heard of Faust legends. And so they, they uh, set aside the uh, obvious drawbacks of that. And so where are the earliest roots of this story? Where does it uh, come from in mythology? Um, the earliest roots of the actual, of, of the pact with the good old Christian devil, our buddy, come from the life of Theophilus of Adena, who was a bishop um, in the 6th century A.D., and he was reputed to have done a deal with the devil to get to be a bishop, um, which is the kind of story that one would have thought the church would discourage <laughs> people from telling. But it turns out that they were able to blame it on the filthy Jews, and so therefore, I guess it was all right. I don't know. The whole story, uh, certainly to modern eyes, always seems weird, because in the original version of the story, Theophilus of Adena is a he's a guy who's passed over unjustly for for being a bishop. He's supposed to be the bishop. Um, he's elected to be the bishop, but he turns uh, the the position down because he doesn't feel that he's worthy of being a bishop. He's too humble and nice a guy. He's like, no, no, I, it would it would it, I don't deserve it. I'm no better than you guys. And so they say, well, all right, and they pick another guy to be bishop, and that guy's a jerk and grinds his face in it all the time, and it makes him so mad that the blandishments of and again, usually it's a Jew in the earlier versions of the story. Um, convince him to do a deal with the devil and use magical power to become a uh, bishop instead. And once he does, he reigns as bishop and, and does all manner of bishopy things, but he's also a horrible sinner and com committing horrible sins. But then at the end of his life, when the devil comes back to get him, he uh, prays to the Virgin Mary, and the Virgin Mary forgives him his sins, and he goes to heaven anyway. And the moral of the story is supposed to be God, through the intercession of the Virgin, loves you so much that even if you consort with Jews and do deals with the devil and are a mean bishop, you still get to go to heaven. That's how good God is. But of course, the moral that's the takeaway is, you mean I can do a deal with the devil and still get to go to heaven? That's awesome. And maybe that's the version of the Faust legend that the Fausts in the Faust legend know. Right. And that, that is the, the core of the difficulty of merging uh, the Christian tradition with the Greek tradition of tragedy, because mm -hmm. as long as you repent in Christian theology, you are never stuck. That the uh, the decision that you've made that you now realize uh, you can't go back on, well, you've still always got a way out, and that's uh, redemption. And so, 
in Marlowe's version, he has to specify that there's, uh, you know, if you kiss a demon, that's it. You've erased God's possibility of redemption, mm -hmm. which makes his play work, but of course uh, wreaks havoc with the whole central point of the Christian religion. Yeah, and, uh, and it's interesting and informative, I think, that the Faust legend, the specific one where Faust is damned anyway, comes out of Protestant Europe. It's, um, Martin Luther is the first person, I believe, to suspect that the historical necromancer and carnival person named John George Faust uh, was actually did a deal with the devil. Martin Luther speculated it in conversation, and one of his disciples wrote it down. And then uh, Melanchthon mentions it in his writing. Lots of Protestant propagandists turned that into a, a version of the story uh, about Faust, and that's where Marlowe picks it up, is from an English translation of Spee's Faust book. Um, and Marlowe, of course, is writing for a Protestant court, even if he may or may not have been secretly Catholic, depending on who you believe. But he's presenting this as a um, uh, as a critique, not of God's mercy, but of the notion that you can get God's mercy without believing in God. So the notion being that in uh, in the in the Catholic theology, the saints are always looking out for you, and you can get an undeserved grace through their forgiveness is countered in this reading by a Protestant notion that if you don't believe in God, if you don't reach out to God, then um, you're 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 damned forever, and you've 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 made an affirmative opposite choice. Now, obviously, you can you know, and indeed people did in uh, Germany and since play all manner of uh, theological hob with that because, of course, in theory, a Protestant should believe that all of your grace is undeserved because nothing you do is going to wash out original sin. And so, therefore, you know, it, it maybe you could go back to one without the Virgin Mary in it and have the original story work. And maybe that's where it, it comes around when, when Goethe changes it back. But the, the sort of impetus for this new version of the story does seem to come out of the new Protestant willingness to change Christian mythology up. And maybe they have not worked out the entire uh, consequences of their version of the story, just like the first guy to come up with Theophilus of Adana's story, who it turns out was a contemporary of his and wrote it down. So at the very least, he's, he's writing down um, uh, real um, uh, rumors or is blaspheming this, this bishop for some reason. Right. And so this was not uh, just a, a myth. This was a belief that this was something that uh, really happened, right? That of mm -hmm. course, yeah. uh, you uh, not only can you meet the devil or his representatives, but uh, they're all over the place, and their uh, whole job is to uh, lead you astray, and therefore uh, they uh, they will do so, and they exist, and uh, you can then look at people who um, are way worse qualified than you are to be b bishop. Uh, who managed to get elevated, and that's something that you can say about somebody as well. They may, they must have made a deal with the devil for that job or to uh, get to marry uh, that uh, beautiful woman I wanted to marry or to get that big tract of land from, from the king. So it's also uh, has an explanatory power for, you know, why in a just universe do unjust things happen? Well, it's because... Uh, there's this force of injustice in the world that people can appeal to, uh, but they'll get theirs in the end. Uh, so you've also, uh, you've got not only the explanation for why other people uh, who don't deserve it can seem to prosper in what is not supposed to be a random universe, but you also 
get to think that, well, they'll get their comeuppance. So, uh, yes, they did get that bishopric, but uh, they're going to go to hell because they made a deal with the devil for uh, getting it. So that uh, is, you know, a pretty easy to understand uh, set of emotional impulses uh, driving the real life belief that then became the myth. Yeah. And I think that this may actually be the first um, appearance of this, because as you point out, there has to be the notion of an overarching good morality in the world for a deal with the devil to make narrative sense. And so there are plenty of magicians in, you know, pre-Christian mythology, but most of them get that way either by being related to a god or a demon in some way. They're like children, you know, obviously the, you know, the, the Greek heroes and, and, uh, and wonder workers have, have divine blood in them. Uh, Merlin is, is the son of the devil in the original versions of, of, of that story. And so there's lots of familial ties and blood ties and things like that. Or they, you know, ingest a magic plant or they, or they have some magical thing happen to them that turns them into magicians. But the part where you actually go and you dicker with some powerfully antinomian entity, uh, unless the Zoroastrians have got some sort of bargain with Araman that I'm not familiar with. It may actually be uh, Christianity that is the the introdu- introducer of this myth in the person of good old Bishop Theophilus. Right, and it's also, of course, a way of introducing lawyers. Right, yeah. the whole idea of the uh, contract uh, for your immortal soul that has the uh, big old clawback uh, clause in it. So it's. You know, on another level, not a surprise or a coincidence that they uh, uh, dragged the poor Jewish population into it. And that, you know, of course, is another long-standing set of uh, grievances against lawyers and legalism that uh, in the later iterations of the myth become more and more sort of the comical versions. And so uh, today's uh, deal with the devil story is more likely to be played as a joke. Like the devil and Daniel Webster, for example. Yeah. Um, so the the thought of actually being able to damn your soul or to get a variety of uh, benefits from the devil by signing a deal with him uh, becomes uh, more and more symbolic and when rendered literally uh, becomes uh, more and more sort of a, a tongue-in-cheek uh, depiction. Is it possible to do a a modern-day version of Faust in our increasingly uh, secular world, or is it only now a way of sort of jokingly playing with uh, an older theology that was uh, taken much more seriously before? I think that people have tried it. There's, uh, I think, is it Michael Swanwick that wrote a novel called Jack Faust that was uh, the... And again, Frankenstein is, I guess, the first sort of post-theistic or atheist uh, myth of uh, Faust in that you've got a that it's something that's not a deal with the devil, but you're transcending natural law in a way. Uh, if you believe in science, you have to believe in something that does not function as science. And so in some sense, any magician is going to be dealing with the devil to a secular humanist because they're operating outside natural law. You can um, present cases like uh, the, the people of Innsmouth making the deal with the deep ones, uh, for uh, in in Shadow over Innsmouth for their their gold and their fish uh, as, as well in a more conventional sort of you scratch my back I'll scratch yours type situation um, I think that in terms of powerful versions of Faust in a non Christian context though you do have to move it out symbolically if you just tell the story of a guy making a deal with a devil that's a very hard sell and although there are 
Um, certainly modern versions of Faust, like um, I think Thomas Mann did one, they're, they're going to either be uh, nostalgic or they're going to wind up having a, like you suggest, a borrowed uh, credibility from uh, medieval theology. Right, and you can certainly do it on an entirely symbolic level because you, in the real non-magical world, you can make Faustian bargains. <laughs> yes, right. Uh, you can, uh, you know, decide to uh, sell out a friend in order to move up the ladder of political influence or to uh, get promoted at your job. You can uh, sell out your talent in order to afford uh, next year's rent. Uh, there's all sorts of uh, things that you can do where you are making a conscious choice to violate your own ethical system in order to get short-term reward and later come to regret it. So you can certainly envision all sorts of uh, Faust stories that have no supernatural element uh, to them whatsoever. Yeah, then the non-supernatural Faust story um, obviously still, uh, you know, banks on there being something moral or immoral about uh, scientific experimentation. Uh, Frankenstein, for example, because uh, it's explicitly mentioned as alchemy is a deal with the past in a way to create the new Adam. Or just, you know, you're crossing the line between life and death. And even though that's been secularized, it's still treated as uh, sacred so that although, uh, you know, Frankenstein is not breaking his own moral code, his own moral code is about crossing lines. Everybody else knows that line should not be crossed. And of course, according to our own pact, with the infernal forces of podcasting, our, our segments must be of a roughly uniform length, so therefore, we must move on to our next one. Lines of latitude and longitude marching across the floor, the elevation markers carefully ticked out in microscopic type, tell us that we have entered the one-to-one -one confines of the cartography hut. And within the cartography hut, we are, as we so often do, turning towards the urban design table, I guess, or corner of the cartography hut, to talk about uh, mixed-use versus single-use cities. And uh, Robin, do you want to jump into... Uh, explaining what those are, or do you want to talk about the impetus for our venture into the cartography hut today? Right. So a mixed-use city is one in which its neighborhoods all fulfill multiple functions. So if you have a neighborhood that has a pottery shop here and a restaurant here, and uh, there's a school over there, and there's uh, residential areas, uh, that would be a mixed-use neighborhood. Whereas the single-use neighborhood makes us think, although it's something that exists in the real world in a lot of cities, and for example, in uh, cities in India, if you have, you know, here's the meatpacking district, which actually is only consisting of people packing meat, not a new fancy neighborhood name that's being rapidly gentrified, or, you know, <laughs> here's, the, here's where the dyers are, or, you know, in the fantasy world, it's like, well, here's the thieves' quarter, and here's the magician's quarter, and here's you know, this neighborhood is for this purpose and this is for another purpose. We like to sort of group neighborhoods 
together thematically in our fantasy worlds, and that's not unrealistic. That comes from older modes of uh, city making where people of different professions sort of banded together more. But one effect of having a chunk of city that is only used for one purpose, specifically that is only used for commercial purposes and is only active X number of hours a day, and then sort of shuts down and becomes deserted, is that those chunks of the city are much more dangerous than they are a city where there's always activity in an area, where there's always eyes on the street, where if you run into trouble, you know there's someone in the next building who you can run to for help or who will be uh, looking out the window and can call other people to come and help you. Whereas if you have just the abattoir district and you're going through there when nobody's working there, uh, that's a time when people can prey on you and safely know that no one is going to interfere with them. So one of the principles that urban designers now increasingly look at in terms of designing safe cities is to make sure that you have neighborhoods where there's all sorts of different things going on in them. So it seems like this is an interesting insight that we can then use when mapping out our imaginary cities and ask ourselves either whether they are safe or unsafe. Obviously, in a fantasy world, you can come up with all sorts of fantasy reasons for a neighborhood to be unsafe, right? That this is the vampire neighborhood, so duh. Mm. But if you want to have sort of a somewhat more of a realistic level of urban design underneath your fanciful city, you can decide that, well, this chunk of the city is safe because there's lots of people there all the time. This other chunk is safe during the day and not at night. And then, you know, there are other areas that are never safe just because they're areas of concentrated uh, poverty. Yeah, the... um the specific uh, eyes on the street sort of notion comes out of Jane Jacobs, who I think was Canadian, wasn't she? Although she uh, she was American, but moved, moved to, to Toronto later on. Uh, Toronto, and is yeah. uh, one of our patron saints. Right. She um uh, because she was sort of the the, the polar opposite of of uh, the city planner Robert Moses, who was sort of the the uncrowned king of New York and was knocking everything down to build freeways and in an attempt to create recreate New York as a modernist. Uh, city space. Right. And so Jacobs was an activist in New York and came to Toronto and said, let's do everything the opposite of uh, Moses. And that's why we have such an awesome city. Or or rather, let's just not knock everything down because New York before Robert Moses had perfectly normal mixed use developments because right. that's how cities organically grow up. And that was kind of her point. Um, and so the, the modernist movement uh, starting, you know, give or take around 1920 or so to redesign cities in exactly this mode that you're talking about, where you put all of the commercial developments at one part of the city, you put all the public housing in giant towers in the middle of, of great open glassy uh, spaces, and that everything in its place and a place for everything in the city moving like a machine is sort of the Le Corbusier model and the and the modernist uh, architecture movement in general of, of sort of tearing down functioning if squalid cities and replacing them with the clean, beautiful things that they saw in their blueprints. And of course, this is not just a modernist impulse. It goes back in a lot of ways to uh, utopian architecture. If you look at uh, Sir Thomas More's uh, utopia, there are sort of planned communities in the same sort of way. Spanish colonial cities have the same sort of structure where these these giant uh, cabildos where the, the, the power and majesty of the colonial government will be established. And they had uh, also, of course, ethnic components where you wanted to have your, your pure Spanish and then your Creoles and then your mestizos and then your natives in concentric rings around your city. And they would establish those sorts of neighborhoods. And after the London fire, there, there was a plan 
it was never put into motion to, you know, since everything had been leveled at, anyway, to rebuild it as a new Rome with wide boulevards. And, mm-hmm. of course, wide boulevards are not necessarily safe either because they reduce, you know, you, you think that, oh, well, we don't want crowds full of people where they're all jostled together. That's not good or safe, that uh, crowding is bad. But, of course, we now sort of understand more that, you know, the more people in an area that the safer it is for you and the further apart people are the people who mean to do harm to others have more room to operate in now again there's no universal panacea because Whitechapel in 1888 was an ideal mixed-use community with plenty of of, uh, low-income housing and lots and lots of uh, small businesses and um, uh, factories and things like that all over the place and of course they had you know an uncatchable serial killer or two operating there for for a great long time so it's not and he had other things that he was, you know, he's preying on, uh, you know, a stigmatized class of people who would be less likely to be uh, missed, aided, and yeah. and because you know the nature of the transaction, prostitution, he was able to you know get them alone. Uh, but the you know it's still the the question is how easy is it to get somebody alone? Is, and is obviously, how- you know, street crime in the pre-modern East End was much lower than the post-modern East End. Although I'm not sure that drawing the conclusion that it's purely the architecture or the urban design that did it is uh, is warranted. Um, but anyway, you can certainly make the, make an argument, and people do, and it m- makes intuitive sense that if you have to walk a great long distance from your uh, place of business to your place of housing, and you're making that walk through a desolate spot, that you are certainly more at risk for being attacked, and all it takes is, like you say, either a social uh, culture in which you are free to be attacked, or, you know, being a member of an already uh, distrusted or, or disliked uh, either economic or, or ethnic group. And then, sure, it's, it's open season on you. And, uh, for example, you have the, the wilding that was the, the big epidemic in Central Park back in the day. And the reason that that could happen is that Central Park is really a giant, giant, giant wilderness in the middle of a city. And that's why, you well, know, when you... there wasn't... If, are you talking about the Central Park Five? No, I'm, I'm talking about the the the, the whole general um, uh, reputation Central Park had after the 1970s of of being right. this sort of you know gang uh, predation zone that there were, you, you couldn't go into Central Park after dark because a, a lot of that turns out to have been sort of uh, mythologized and and imagined. Although certainly you know the idea of a deserted park in the middle of the city is is not a place of safety. But <laughs> yeah, I mean it, it, certainly if a deserted walkway is uh, unsafe, a deserted park walkway is even less safe because you don't have clear lines of sight and there's convenient shrubbery to hide behind. Right, which raises the other interesting question of you know there uh, are often political forces within a city who have a stake in making certain areas seem dangerous, and they may actually be dangerous or they may be. Uh, places where the danger is wildly exaggerated. Now, in most adventure genre uh, things, we are intentionally heightening the idea that the cities are are dangerous in order that Batman can have uh, mysteriously uh, mohawked, leather-jacketed guys to burst out of everywhere, and he he can then uh, lay them low and demonstrate his uh, uh, Batmanitude. But if you had a, a more realistic approach to issues of of crime in cities, you would also have to look at the extent to which uh, people are sometimes very, very afraid to go outside of their comfort zones, and that uh, fear may be unwarranted, and that may be part of the way that the political forces that be keep people in line is by keeping them afraid to leave their own uh, neighborhoods. And sometimes that fear may be whipped up to the degree where it is warranted. And then there are other things where 
it may be, you know, your map of the city could, for example, have uh, vary in safety depending on who you are. So that if you're a member of the, uh, the, the half-elf group, it may be dangerous to move into dwarven territory because they will beat you up and keep you away because they, uh, they have been paid off by the authorities to make sure that the half-elves don't uh, expand beyond uh, Bent Tallow Lane. Yeah, and again, in a, in a sort of a darker conspiratorial or urban fantasy type setting, the question of who is saying that this is a vampire hunting ground is it's a valuable question to ask as a GM, and maybe it's a fun question to ask as a player, because if it's not a vampire hunting ground, who's spreading that story? And if it is a vampire hunting ground, why are the vampires advertising it? Or maybe it's the werewolves that are advertising it in an attempt to box the vampires in and let the werewolves have the, the, dock, the dockyards, which are the, the really good hunting grounds and that this is all part of an, an ongoing thing. Or maybe it's the mages who are doing it in an attempt to get the park condemned and turned into uh, high-rises so that they can use uh, the, the, the ley line power up on the tops of buildings where it's stronger. There's all manner of... I mean, there, once you look into any city, any real city, and you start asking who owns the, the land, who is profiting from what use of it, every single question can be looked at through the most cynical and corrupt and disgusting eyes imaginable, and Maybe seven times out of ten, that's right. When I was doing a Call of Cthulhu game set in Los Angeles in 1999, I know that my uh, best resource was uh, Mike Davis's City of Quartz. And so in general, if you uh, want to make your game setting a, uh, a, a hellhole uh, pregnant with, with grotesque conspiratorial meaning, I advise you to find a Marxist who has written about your city and, and <laughs> go to town on that book, because that's what they will present. To tie back to the first segment, as uh, you're creating your map of the city, or as you're adding to a map of an existing city, you could create uh, an overlay of safety zones. And so within uh, this area, you could mark, uh, you, if you color code it, you could have a, a map that has, you know, your red sections of the city that are very dangerous to move through, your green sections that are very safe, and your yellow in between. And those could tie into random tables of how likely it is that you're just going to be uh, either randomly attacked uh, or attacked by a representative of that neighborhood. So you could, you know, have a, a map that the players could then, you know, they don't get the actual layout map of the safer, dangerous parts of the city, but as they decide to move around your map, you know whether they're moving into the high danger zones where they're likely to be ambushed by the vampires or if they're safely uh, circumnavigating the vampire neighborhood. Or if, as is often the case in urban fantasy, they're part of some faction in the city, maybe an area that's a red zone for everyone else is a green zone for them because their faction runs that turf, but an area that's green zone, except for the absolute brightest, most tourist-lit metropolis parts of your city, there might be a green zone for everyone else that's bad for them because that means that their you know open hunting season is on the the half vampires or or the half elves or whatever because they they got out of, out of elf town and and it, it's a whole new ball game right and you may be much more aware of that those characters may indeed have a mental map of exactly where it's safe to go if it's all faction based right that you mm -hmm. know if you're a half elf that you can't go past bent tallow lane or you'll wind up in a fight with dwarves mm -hmm. and that uh, map you could present to your players as here's the safe parts of the city for. Uh, you to go to half elf player 
here's the safe places in the city for you to go to, dwarf player. Notice how few areas of intersection <laughs> there are. You basically can both be on Bent Tallow Lane, and all you'll have is fights. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, there's a, the, the, I think we talked about the, the gang map of Chicago back in the day, and that, of course, was a, a very real thing. And when you talk about the ethnic groups being basically encouraged by local business owners or local political factions or both to beat up foreigners, strangers, uh, the unlike them as they come into the into the district. That, of course, was a very common thing to happen in Chicago, where the Irish gangs would patrol the borders of Canaryville to make sure that the, uh, the African-Americans from uh, Bronzeville, the next street over, would not cross the street uh, wrong. And you can you can take that element of it and uh, <laughs> make it less grotesque by making it a fantasy or urban fantasy type uh, type development, and then you start asking, okay, if the half elves are restricted to, to to Elf Town and the and the dwarves, whose interest is it to make Bent Tallow Lane the the boundary? What's what's who, you know? Do the do, are the dwarves the pawns of the wizards? Do the dwarves know that underneath Dwarf Town is is a big ball of mithril that keeps them powerful, and that the elves would take if they could? What's 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 going on under the story? Bef- after you've drawn the the boundaries, who set those boundaries up? Those boundaries are created. They're not you know immutable natural forces. And you know that could then lead you to explore you know the power structure of the city to find out you know in whose interest it is to make sure that the dwarves are are powerful and the half elves are weak. Or you know you could just. Uh, create your gang of half-elves to try and push the, the dwarves back, and you could have, your map of safety could change as you wage a, a turf war within the city. So you could have a campaign where, you know, you're the outcasts and you're safe in this little uh, area, and at the beginning of each session, the uh, GM shows you the revised map, showing you just how much of the city that you've made safe for the members of your cult or your ideology or whatever it is, and uh, when you uh, do badly in a session, the, that your safe zone contracts, and when you succeed, your safe zone expands. Yeah, or you can be trying to make it safe for everyone to go if you're real do-gooder types. Um, something like uh, Ray Winninger's Underground that had the uh, methodology by which you can improve safety in your neighborhood through actions that you take place, spending your experience to you know just sort of improve the city so that you say... When we're not actually having adventures, we're going around patrolling and making, being eyes on the street in the Jacobsian sense and making sure that everything is copacetic and maybe trying to tamp down this, this elf dwarf war that keeps going for reasons no one understands. And then the other thing to do with that layout, once you've got it, is disrupt it. You say, oh, the vizier is going to build a new road right through Bent Tallow Lane and it's going to go right down the middle of the, of the district and it's going to, uh, uh, blow both of your, your, your neighborhoods apart. And who's behind that? What's that about? And, you know, is there is there something that maybe the elves and the dwarves, they've been encouraged to fight so that they won't oppose this new ley line road that's going through? Yes, we've opposed each other for generations, but uh, there's a foe that we must unite against, and that's urban development. Yes, uh, it's, it's single-use urban development. Exactly. Those jerks. Uh, well, speaking of boundaries, it's time for us to uh, uh, look out for vampires and dwarves as we cross the boundary into our final segment. The sound of ritualistic psychedelic music, the smell of the sacred herb, 
and perhaps even the sight of a conjured vampire walking down the stairs of our commune tell us that we are in a particularly strange and Aquarian instance of consulting a cultist. This week, Ken, I thought we would talk about the Source family, one of the archetypal New Age cults of the late 60s and 70s, and they feature in a really great 2012 documentary directed by Maria Demopoulos and uh, Jody uh, Weil. And the really fascinating thing about this is not just that it's an incredible story, but that one of the members of this cult, which started out in Los Angeles, was uh, affiliated with the film industry. And her job, once she joined uh, this commune, the Source family, was to document with quality audio and uh, I think 16 millimeter film everything that happened. So, and she's been sitting on this archive of material that was uh, created within this movement, waiting for uh, someone to come along and uh, put it to use. And so the filmmakers uh, approached her and made contact with her. And so you get to see the story of the uh, rise and disintegration of this cult play out before you, because so much of it, uh, including really uh, pivotal moments, are all on either on audio or on a film with audio. So that you really put you inside uh, this experience, which was uh, not so long ago, but in a lot of other ways, uh, seems like a, a million years ago. So, Ken, have you run across the uh, Source family before in your researches? Now, the Source family was a new one to me when it showed up in our Ken and Robin schedule. I, I looked into it, and it it's the sort of thing that I suspect I've run into various echoes of it at one place or another, but I had not run into the Source family themselves. Um, I think mostly because they they were pretty harmless, and so therefore they're not particularly interesting to the kinds of people who write scary uh, occult books. It's it's a story where you expect something to really horrible to happen, go horribly wrong, <laughs> and then the thing that happens is the least horrible thing that can happen. So I mean, it was still pretty sad, but it was not you know it's, God, it's not Manson family. Yes. <laughs> let's put it that way. <laughs> or what, or what you're expecting is. Uh, uh, you're expecting Jim Jones, right? Yeah, right. Or or something awful. Yeah, or David Koresh or something yeah. like that. So uh, <laughs> let's just say there's a lot of ways it could have gone, and it didn't go those ways. There, there's a lot of archetypical ways it can go really, really bad. So the guy at the center of this is a guy named uh, Jim Baker. It's uh, with one K. This is not the Jim Baker with the two Ks, uh, who was the disgraced evangelist of the 80s. But uh, this is a a uh, story of uh, a guy of the greatest generation who then becomes an exponent of the hippie generation. And so he's a uh, decorated uh, pilot, I think it is, in uh, World War II. He maybe uh, kills uh, 11 enemy soldiers. Uh, and he's also, by the time he starts this cult, has already karate chopped two guys to death in separate incidents where he's being confronted for cuckolding them. <laughs> he goes free under the condition that he... Uh, has his hands registered as deadly weapons, which I didn't think was an actual thing, but turns out to to be a thing. And he is a successful restaurateur in the uh, 60s, and then he has his midlife crisis. And so he uh, starts uh, chomping down amphetamines like crazy and uh, getting involved with the nascent hippie movement, and particularly a fetching young woman. And 
starts taking money out of the till at the uh, popular L.A. restaurant that he runs, uh, but other people own, and gets fired. So then he sets up uh, one of the first health food restaurants called The Source. And the word is that he, uh, his investors are his bank robberies. So uh, <laughs> apparently he knocked over a couple of banks, uh, at least he said on several different occasions to different members of his uh, religious group that he had done so, establishes this uh, extremely fashionable restaurant called The Source in the late uh, 60s, uh, where Hollywood's culturally counterculture uh, movie stars uh, gather to eat raw and, and healthy food. So it's a, a big influence on the whole health food movement. Uh, but then he becomes a guru. He achieves enlightenment. He starts to refer to himself as Father Yod, and he uh, groups all of these uh, seekers who are coming out to California to uh, experience the new age, the Aquarian age together, and uh, they set up a commune together. And he has this moment, uh, which is something that those of us who are familiar with uh, prophets and cult leaders uh, are familiar with, where uh, this group was famous for having all sorts of gorgeous young women in it. And uh, he is uh, married to a particular gorgeous uh, woman who is much uh, younger than he is. And then at some point, like a lot of other prophets before him, he decides that, well, you know, the, the path to enlightenment lies with me having 12 wives. And he gets going and uh, starts doing other cult leader type things like uh, breaking up uh, couples and asking them to form new couples within the group. And he moves from uh, sort of a new age kind of ritual uh, where everybody smokes the sacred herb in the morning. But then uh, he's also influenced by people like Manly Hall. So he starts uh, getting everybody involved in uh, ritual magic and in uh, sex magic. And that's when things start to get a little crazy. They start to see vampires walking down the stairs of their commune, which uh, is something apparently that happens even when you're working white magic Apparently, when you disturb the forces, uh, you can get uh, vampire sightings in your uh, in your lovely commune. <laughs> well, you know, the the interesting thing to me is sort of on the occult level is that he starts out as um, a follower of Sikhism and of yoga uh, and sort of um, Kundalini yoga and and sort of that next thing over next to Hare Krishna. It isn't Hare Krishna, but it's a kindred set of beliefs. And then his magic is, as you say, it's Manly Hall style. Western mystery tradition, and so Father Yod, obviously Yod is a it's it's not just a, a, a Hebrew letter, but it's also a fundamental component of the Kabbalah because it's one of the letters in God's name, and so the the the, the switch over to Western magic from Eastern magic is, I think, one of the interesting things there, and maybe the vampires that he's seeing are, are the Vitalas or the or the magical um, shells of his former magical experience. That he's, that he's thrown off, and that maybe that's part of it as well. Or it could just be that the vampires only want you to have uh, nine wives and not an unlucky number like 12. And an another thing he does is he, uh, at this point, they're still raking in a lot of money from the restaurant, health food restaurant, the source. And so he takes a big chunk of money and tells uh, the young guys, who, and everybody in the cult is renamed. So you could be named Orbit or Isis or... Uh, all sorts, of, you know, and everybody's last name is Aquarian, and in some cases their middle name is the. So, uh, <laughs> so he he sends uh, Sunflower Aquarian and a bunch of the other uh, musically inclined guys out to the uh, music store and tells them to buy the very best music gear they possibly can, and then they 
go back and they create their home recording studio and they start making all of this uh, crazy music. And uh, they're the guys who know how to play are mostly doing sort of regular psychedelic rock and roll. And then Father Yod comes in and starts drumming and chanting. And all of this music is still available because everything was archived and it's on streaming services now. If you're a subscriber to RDO, you can listen to all of it. And some of it is, you know, kind of insipid hippie style folk rock. And then others of it is actually really quite fascinating and weird sort of the if, if there's a continuum where one end is Sun Ra and the other end is a Grateful Dead, they're kind of in, in the middle of this. And so if you subscribe to one of these streaming services and you have a scenario where there's a uh, high 60s, early 70s uh, ritual going on, uh, you could do no better than to uh, start streaming some of this uh, really crazy but fascinating uh, music, which for years and years and years was only you know, available as outsider music on these r rare vinyl pressings that people like Billy Corgan discovered and thought were amazing. And now yeah, they'd be sold out of the back of the restaurant, basically uh, yeah. uh, like you'd sell uh, CDs in Starbucks now, but uh, they'd, they'd sell them out of the restaurant. And so hippie bands in California would hear about this sound and they would go out and they would buy them um, sort of a, a weird hippie version of punk, I guess. Um, it's it's very strange, but uh, uh, cool and, and worth uh, listening to as, as mood music for certain uh, moods. So the whole thing go goes a cropper when they decide to move to Hawaii, thinking that it will be an even more utopian space. But of course, uh, one of the things that people might not expect about Hawaii is that Hawaiians don't want other people coming there to <laughs> use up their paradise. To, to wreck it. Uh, especially uh, a bunch of hippies with no visible means of support. So when they move, they separate themselves from the uh, revenue source of the restaurant. And when they arrive, they get a really rough ride uh, in the press and the locals. Uh, the uh, Manson thing has already happened, and the word Manson gets used uh, in reference to them. And so uh, things start to kind of uh, slowly spiral and then one day, uh, this guy who until now has been exhibited all the classic signs of the charismatic cult leader suddenly starts saying to his followers, you know, may maybe I'm not God. Maybe I've just screwed everything up. Jeez, I don't know. And so... It's when when you get away from the vampires. Perhaps so. And so uh, you're starting to fear that this sort of Maurice Applewhite mass suicide thing is in, in the wings. But actually, all he does is he takes himself out. He gets in a hang glider and says some suicidal sounding things and goes up in the air and uh, comes down hard. And his, uh, his final words as he dies are all uh, recorded uh, as well. And uh, it's uh, a case where you don't expect this, uh, a guy fitting this template to have that sense of, you know, backing off and uh, you know, he doesn't want to be uh, in the world anymore, but he doesn't, decide to take everybody with him. Yeah. Now, in the film, what it doesn't cover is that for several years afterwards, uh, that left everybody adrift in this compound in Hawaii, and they had no visible means of support. And apparently things got really, really desperate for a while there. Uh, but uh, when you see the people today interviewed, there's a surprising number of them who still uh, look at that as a positive experience, albeit a, a weird one that went too far. And a lot of them are still very much involved in uh, the New Age movement or in activism. And uh, there are uh, uh, some of them, his wife in particular, who uh, still regard themselves as being intensely damaged by it. But uh, most of them still look back on that experience with a, a surprisingly 
positive view. <laughs> um, yeah, the the notion of his, um, I guess, you know, what they the self sky burial is an interesting end mythologically as well, because obviously the parallel to say Shelley, you know, going out on the bay in in the small boat alone, even though there's a storm brewing up, is is there. I, I, Wikipedia has a great. Uh, phrase that he successfully crash landed on the beach and died nine hours later, which makes me think that they don't know what the word successfully yeah. exactly well, means. Well, he succeeded in crashing. Yes, he he he, he got that right. Um, but I think that's not hard as a as as a well, headliner. Yeah, and that's what he intended to do, right? He was he was letting go of his mm-hmm. spirit, and, and so the, the there's a lot you can do with this, just from a sort of a, a mythical perspective. Your your notion. Of, of using the music as mood music is, is a great one. The notion that there's some occult wisdom that was impressed on one of these, you know, zillion recordings. There's it's on like 65 albums worth of Yahweh 13 uh, records that uh, are now coming out on streaming or apparently through a, a small press in Chicago. And one of those could contain both the key to unlock the door of wisdom, but also it's the door to the spectral vampires who will who will get you if you don't have the the gumption to sort of you know, uh, sacrifice yourself and 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 keep them away from uh, your 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 cult following. I, there's there's a lot of stuff there for guys who are like you like you we intimated at the beginning don't have a big dramatic uh, you know and therefore interesting from a game perspective if horrible for the people involved a flame out that it just sort of becomes one of a myriad cults that sort of reaches the end of its financial rope and then says. Well, that was a terrible idea, and they go back and and do other things, or some of them, as with many other New Age cults, still uh, have their you know their worldview rewired by that experience, and still follow you know recognizable ver- variants of, of that uh, philosophy, but are no longer you know living in uh, in crazy cult proximity, and and therefore vulnerable to that sort of uh, social dysfunction. And in order to make it more of a story, the temptation is to make it much worse and make it horrible, but it seems to sort of not honor the real-life story. So uh, it would be interesting to, obviously, players coming to that situation where they, uh, you know, enter the commune and meet Father Yod or your fictionalized version of Father Yod and, you know, you meet Orbit Aquarian and Sunflower Aquarian. Your natural instinct as players is go, oh, well, there's something really sinister under the surface here. There's, you know, these guys are obviously... Summoning Yogg-Sothoth or, or what have you, but um, it would be, I think, interesting to you know keep them as benign forces, and so that that assumption turns out to be wrong, and that the element of danger or, or mystery in the scenario, uh, you know, they're kind of a, a red herring who point you toward the right direction. It could be that the you know the manly hall f- figure. Uh, is trying to do something bad by giving them the wrong rituals and giving them black rituals and calling them right rituals, uh, or just the idea of, you know, that vampires and spectral entities are the inevitable effluvia even of white magic, so they summon these entities uh, without intending any harm that you then have to uh, uh, track down and uh, neutralize. There's the idea that there's, you know, something been recorded in one of these uh, zillion of albums that are being reissued, and then once they're you know, reissued an MP3 form, some sort of magical effect comes out and then you have to, uh, you know, check all the IP addresses of everybody who's been streaming it and finding out what uh, what the effect of, of uh, that is. Um, and certainly just as a bit of sociology in order to summon up this uh, very different era than our own, uh, 
I really highly recommend uh, checking out that documentary. I think that one way to play it also could be you don't present, you don't bring the characters into the the um, source commune as it's going. You bring them in in you know the early '80s maybe, and they're investigating, or even now, and they're investigating it, and they're like, "Oh my God, this is all so horribly weird," and vampires and Yog Sothoth, and I don't know what's going on, and their investigations undo Father Yod's final sacrifice, right? As they're digging up all the things that he carefully left buried and hidden, and when they put together all the stuff that he had scattered through the music, and it's like, now as long as all this other sacred music is around it, Yogg-Sothoth can't find his own spheres and come back together, and it's their investigation that reopens the door that he shut, and so that can be an interesting sort of, you know, again, I guess, uh, Faustian uh, moment for the players when they realize their quest for this forbidden knowledge has actually made them the bad guys in the story. My player characters tend to have that realization about every other game. That they're, <laughs> I think we're the villains, and those guys over there are the real player characters in the good campaign that's going on in the next universe over. Yes. Well, this time we're just the well-intentioned destroyers. Yeah. You know, to also to state the obvious, you could also use this story as the inspiration for a drama system game where you are all members of this uh, cult and it's under pressure and uh, uh, things are starting to go awry and uh, what do you do about it? How do you uh, protect the people around you or make sure it's the people who are your rivals who end up bearing the brunt? And that's uh, something that, uh, you know, and it carries through a, a pretty big piece of history. There's a big arc from uh, these humble beginnings to kind of success and fame. And then uh, as one of the survivors says, and then after a while, everyone just thought we were idiots. And there's sort of a, <laughs> a Saturday Night Live sketch with the original cast that uh, where they're all quite obviously making fun of that particular restaurant in the, uh, in the sketch. And so uh, it's another uh, way of uh, tackling the whole uh, rise and then flame out of 60s idealism. Yeah, I, I, in a drama system game, would you make uh, Father Yod an, a non-player character? So no, the, no, no. You always the, the your impulse to make the uh, key figure a non-player character is uh, not the way to go in drama system. That that's uh, you make it a player, and other people have to negotiate their uh, way through them. That if you have a leader in drama system, you make him uh, sort of uh, ineffectual, so that it's the uh, players and their interplay making the uh, interesting decisions with each other. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm just wondering if, you know, it's at the end when everything's going to hell and Father Yod is getting ready to, you know, get on that hang glider and you're playing the, the people who are trying to maneuver to be next to Father Yod and then, you know, season end, uh, season cliffhanger, literally, he goes, you know, over the cliff and then the next season of the drama system game is now what? Yes. As opposed to the, the um, you know, if, if you've got something where... The one of the players is Father Yod, um, and again, this may be because I've played mostly one shots. Where, as you say, it's all you know, topple the king. Um, it, do you think that the dynamic moves away from how can we all you know uh, survive as members of the source? It moves into that rather than how do I get to be the real Father Yod? Yeah, because if you're playing in a drama system, it's nothing is ever foreordained. It's going to happen, yeah. right? You know, you might know the real story, but. Your version of it might wind up being that Father Yod fakes his own death and goes and uh, uh, sets up a sushi restaurant in mm -hmm. Spokane. <laughs> oh, right. No. And that uh, 
and that that's the coda or that things spiral horribly out of control, that you can take inspiration from stuff in drama system, but you can never be sure, even if you all have a storyline in, in mind, that it's going to go a, a particular way. Now, if Father Yod's character, sorry, player, knows they have to move to another city that because uh, they've been transferred in their job, you could have the season ender where Father Yod goes off over the cliff and then the next season goes on without that uh, player. Or you could have a level of suspense where, you know, maybe that player comes back playing somebody else and uh, has abandoned uh, Father Yod now that he's uh, taken his hang glider flight into infinity. Well, um, with, uh, <laughs> with, with the creation of a full-on drama system story and having repeatedly invoked the cliffhanging end of Father Yod uh, season one, I think we have almost certainly also invoked the cliffhanging end of Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff episode 99. And next episode will be our 100th episode anniversary all lightning round edition, so stay tuned for that. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Roll on the random table of our hearts by hitting the donate button at kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, podcast, or better city of tomorrow by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.